You're listening to Tatiana Is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Chris. And my name is Stephanie. And in this episode, we are discussing episode 507 of Orphan Black, Gag or Throttle. While we will discuss everything that happened in that episode, there shouldn't be any spoilers for future episodes. I can't believe we're this far into the final season. I know. It always feels like it goes so fast. I mean, only 10 episodes. It does go pretty fast. It does go pretty fast. But boy, how did this episode ramp stuff up? Chris, holy, holy something I'm not allowed to say on this podcast. This episode had me so stressed out. I can't remember the last time I was this stressed out watching an episode of Orphan Black. I feel like we have one at least every season, right? Yes, it's true. But you're right. They're, they were really amping it up, especially with the music. The music was really anxiety-inducing <laughs> in, like, the best way. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But I kind of had a feeling it was going to go this way because, because it was an episode so clearly focused about Rachel, because Rachel is just all this, like, ball of tension that then tends to explode in very spectacular ways. So I kind of knew something Spectacular and violent. Mm-hmm. So I kind of knew something big was going to happen in this episode, but I just didn't know what. And as always, I just you just never know what Rachel's going to do. I mean, fairly early on into her spiral, my dad's like, she's going to poke her eye out. And uh, she did. I was thinking more of what she did with Kira, but sure, yes, she did also poke her eye out. <laughs> I, I knew she was going to do something drastic also. I wasn't sure that it was going to be poking her eye out because I was like, okay, but but Rachel's clearly, I mean, because she's Rachel, she's going to plot out how she can use this, right? Or or how she'll avoid it, which she did do. And then she also uh, gouged it out of her head in a most gruesome fashion. Should I should I not have led with the, the eye gouging? Yeah, I, th- I kind of regret that we got to the eye gou- gouging this fast, but that's Sorry. okay. I think what this episode did was encapsulate, for me, how the show has treated this character throughout the series. And I know there are people out there who listen to this podcast who are going to send us emails saying, Rachel is terrible, you can have no sympathy for her, she needs to die, etc., etc. I know there are those people out there. <laughs> However, I disagree. I feel like, yes, Rachel is terrible. She clearly is a villain in this piece. She has done irredeemable things. But I feel like what the writers have always done well is not letting us as the audience lose sight of the fact that Rachel is also a victim of the clone experiment. And she has perhaps been even even more victimized by it than many of the clones we've met. It's It's a little bit hard to play... Who is the bigger victim? But I I do feel like because it has had a more pervasive influence on her life, it it is fair to say that she has been deeply affected by it in a way that none of the other clones have been. Because there's still, I'm sure, plenty of leaders out there who know nothing of the fact that they are part of an experiment, which doesn't mean they are not, you know, victims of the clone experiment. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I think because Rachel has been conscious of it her entire life, she knows the control that has been exerted upon her life and has been subject to some pretty gruesome things, it feels like. Some great indignities. I, I do feel like the flashbacks that we got in this episode 
sort of give us that extra sense. I mean, we'd, we'd gotten this before, but maybe let us see it in a new way that Rachel really is desperate for both sort of like parental approval and some sense of power, like power or authority over herself and or others, right? And I think part of her need and want for that power is connected to her being the self-aware clone and knowing that she is trapped in this experiment and wanting to at least have some level of power and authority to counteract that feeling of being a guinea pig. Because mm-hmm. that's clearly what we see in first pla- flashback with Leaky, at least to me, you know, like Rachel, that he trots out, Rachel, this is my show dog, you know, let me let me demonstrate for you our, our wonderful clone here. Yep. It's it's sort of like a really dark, twisted version of that whole thing where like the parents have the kids perform for the company for, yeah. you know, like, like company comes over and like, here, come, come play the piano for, for our guests, except way more messed up than that. And I felt like the flashback that we got with Leaky, where they re- reveal that she killed the clone who was suffering from the clone disease and performed an autopsy on her. And like, this is consistent with what we've seen of Rachel in, in the present, right? Like, she's trying to separate herself out and distinguish herself from the other clones, being sort of a model clone, if you will. And she does it by doing something just completely awful. Mm-hmm. And like, aren't you so proud of me for doing this thing that you weren't willing to do, but I am. <sighs> and then, even though Leaky is part of what has put her in that position he finds her behavior disgusting. So it just feels like he, she can never really live up to whatever expectations might be set for her from her parental figures. Mm-hmm. And again, I feel like this episode does a good job of fleshing out Rachel, and you, there are moments where you can have compassion for her, but it doesn't try to make her a puppy dog. It doesn't try to smooth out her sharp edges her razor sharp edges (laughs) she still has done terrible terrible things she's not a hero in this piece but i think even though we can see her in that light i think it's also possible to say yes she was terrible she's a terrible person she's done bad things to people but i also feel like she also didn't deserve to be treated the way she was treated right it's and and i think we've talked about this a little bit before but it's sort of like a it's not the mirror version, but it's it's something similar to what we've seen with Helena, except Helena, of course, was much more willing to change, you know, wants being offered the opportunity to change. Rachel's been offered the opportunity. It's like, no, thanks. I'm good. You're all terrible. Even though Rachel's the one that's terrible. But, <laughs> but I feel like it's a similar setup, right? Situation-wise. Where her upbringing has turned her into the monster that she is? Kind of, yeah. That they both got raised in this situation where, like, this is how they were taught to be. This is how they ended up being as a way of coping with that sort of thing. They've both done horrible, horrible things. But you, the audience, for the most part, not everybody, I understand that, can can at least have some sympathy for the way they've had to live, though, again, 
Helena seeks redemption and Rachel really doesn't except for sparing Kira in this episode, which I don't know. I have mixed feelings about. I feel like Rachel does the right thing in this episode, but again, it does not redeem her as a person entirely, redeem her as a character entirely, because we've seen how many awful things that she has done. To me, this just feels like, okay, Rachel finally did the right thing. And of course, I I think part of what's interesting about this setup is that they framed it very much as Rachel sees Kira in the position she was in. So it's not even really selfless. No, absolutely. (laughs) Exactly. Because it's like, okay, if if I let this happen, then she's going to be me. And I hated everything that happened. So I'm going to spare her. It's a way for her to save herself in a way. Right. I really liked that scene where she goes to give Kira the sedatives. And at first she's talking to Kira and then shot changes and she's she's talking to the younger version of herself. Mm-hmm. And she asks her the younger version of herself, why don't you run? And younger Rachel replies, where else would I go? And I, and I feel like Rachel, I don't know if that was key to Rachel helping Kira, but I, I do think that maybe we're supposed to get a sense of that, that Rachel knows that Kira does have some place to go. She has a family who loves her and sure. who will, will take care of her. And, and that's kind of what I wonder about Rachel. If, Again, Rachel, terrible, terrible. And I think from what we've seen of the backstory they've revealed in the comic books suggests to me that Rachel just always has had a very mean streak to her. And it makes me wonder if she had been placed in a stable family the way that Kasima was or, you know, many of the other clones were, if she could have turned out differently. Like, sure, she might have always had a bit of a mean streak, but if she had had warm, loving, consistent parents who could offer her support, would she have turned out to be a less terrible person? Yeah, and there's that exchange, that very telling exchange between Rachel and Kira, where Kira asks her, who hurt you? And Rachel replies, all of them, because this is what we were talking about earlier with with Rachel and her parental figures, because they have all just sort of used her. And I think you're completely right in saying that this change in Rachel's behavior in this episode, in in getting Kira back to her family, I think it is really about knowing that Kira has people who really genuinely love her and are taking care of her and are the parents that Rachel never got to have. So yeah, it is about Rachel saving herself, or as close as she can get to it. I liked how they brought in all of her parental figures in this episode because we get Leaky in the flashbacks, Westmoreland a little bit too, Westmoreland in the present, and then we see Rachel visiting Susan's grave, and then we see her revisiting those childhood videos that they first introduced back in season two. I feel like that room Rachel goes to, the video room, I feel like it needs a name. I kind of think of it as Rachel's terror room. I don't know why. I mean, it's not inaccurate. Because <laughs> really, that's where she goes to drink and like lament her upbringing, it feels like. But, you know, it was that her seeing the only glimpse of like her happy childhood that she managed to have. Anyway, I just I liked how they, they wove in the different parental influences in her life a lot. 
the wallow room. <laughs> yeah. I can't talk now. I'm I'm on my way to the wallow room. <laughs> <laughs> can't you tell by the bottle of vodka I am carrying? Please just put two or three liters of vodka in there. I love that she was drinking straight vodka out of a martini glass. Like, first she was kind of pretending. I feel like she at least put an olive in there. But then it was just just straight vodka from a martini glass. Or It was vodka probably, right? Not gin? It looked like a vodka bottle to me. Yeah. Mm, gin. <laughs> <laughs> gin is much more British than vodka, though. It's true. Speaking of Westmoreland, we see some flashbacks with him, uh, which reveal that he t- tried to pull what we saw him kind of pulling with mud a few episodes ago. His very fatherly, you are, you know, I think of you as a daughter and and all of that business. And I think it gave us a hint as to why Rachel seems so gosh darn happy in the premiere, because that was a big question we have at the end of the first episode, right? What happened to Rachel? Right. And also he offers her, he claims to offer her autonomy over herself, basically. And I actually wanted to bring up something about the paper that he has her sign, as if to sign over ownership of herself to herself. The way it was formatted you know, the little line that you sign that normally has, like, your name underneath it? It had her designation, her her Lita designation, followed by her name. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's actually what's happening, Rachel. Hmm. Like, the way this is formatted seems kind of gross. Because, I mean, the whole idea there was that, like, you know, you're your own person now, but we're going to call you by your, your series of numbers and letters... Comma, Rachel Duncan. And Westmoreland just knew exactly what to offer her to win her over, right? He he offers her a father figure. He offers her at least a, a feeling of autonomy, fake autonomy, this contract for her to sign, and gives her the keys to the castle, puts her ostensibly at the head of Neolution. And then we see in throughout the course of this episode just all of those feelings of security that might have brought her just completely unraveling. It's very reminiscent of Sarah describing, well, I guess Akira describing what Sarah had taught her about conning people. Mm-hmm. You find out what people want, and then you give them what they want. Or at least you claim to give them what they want, which is what he did. All the while undermining the things you're saying with with your actions, which is, I feel, also what turned Rachel around by the end of the episode. I can't recall who it was, I apologize, but I do recall a a listener sending in some feedback speculating on Rachel's eye being a two-way type of thing, and not surprisingly, we get this reveal that her eye is a camera that Westmoreland has been using to spy on her. Mm-hmm. And that just must have been a kick in, a complete kick in the gut to her. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine the the sense of betrayal there. Because this is the person who sh- who she thought had offered her like an out of the experiment, but he had just embroiled her further. I hate to say this, but I'm debating whether or not this makes Rachel gullible. What we see happens between her and Westmoreland, you mean? Mm-hmm. I think that's a fair... I think that's fair. Okay. Because, I mean, I feel like a lot of us watching it were like... Nah, this guy's up to something. And for as as savvy as we've seen Rachel be about stuff, she seemed pretty taken with him. Which, again, I get, because the whole idea is that he's a con man, and so he's very good at conning people. 
But still, just I, I don't know, the lack of suspicion on Rachel's part kind of surprises me. Well, I think we get the sense when Sarah tries to elicit her help and by sending her the information about West, uh, Westmoreland's real identity, I think we get the sense that Rachel never really thought he was 170 years old. Right. So she at least was not gullible to that extent. But I think okay, for sure, sure. The, fact, the fact that he offered her all these things that she wanted, I, I do think that that put her in a very vulnerable for her position where she was willing to look past things that maybe she would otherwise have scrutinized. That's fair. One of the things I have to admit that I, I don't know, I was distracted the first time I watched the episode, so I didn't really pick up on this, but Kira made a friendship bracelet for Rachel, and Rachel wore it through the entire episode. Oh, I didn't see Rachel put it on. I missed that part. Oh, yeah, she put it on and had it on through the rest of the episode. Hmm. Which I think also, you know, contributes to this argument that Rachel had been seeking connection, right? Seeking some sort of familial connection. And I think once the thing with Westmoreland fell through a little bit, Kira's at least seemingly genuine, and I think actually kind of genuine kindness toward her, maybe contributed to Rachel's change of heart. I did wonder if when Kira gave her the friendship bracelet, if that was part of Kira's efforts to con her a little bit. Because we we did have that scene between her and Sarah where she was saying, I am willing to try to con Rachel for you. Mm -hmm. And we saw a payoff on like all the code names they discussed in this episode as well. And I believe those two things happened in the same episode. So I was curious if maybe Kara was trying to con her a little bit. I mean, that could be too. But we do actually see Kara being, I feel at least genuinely kind to Rachel you know, with her reaching out as Rachel's picking at her nails and asking who hurt her and, you know, stuff like that. Absolutely. I was going to say, even though I had that initial thought with the friendship bracelet, when I saw how Kira interacted with her throughout most of the episode, Kira is just like a really kind, compassionate kid, it seems like. Mm -hmm. And I did feel like she still was uncertain about Rachel and her intentions, even though she had seemed more comfortable with Rachel at the beginning of the season. I feel like there was more uncertainty here. Mm -hmm. But but I, I do think that because we see Kira being kind to her, perhaps that indicates there's it's not all bad with Rachel, just mostly. <laughs> Which, I mean, is what we saw from Rachel in this episode. She's mostly yeah. bad, but she's not 100% evil. <laughs> Like, 98. <laughs> and, and going back to that moment you've mentioned a couple of times where Kara asks Rachel, who hurt you? I thought that was, it, it felt pointed to me that it was a child asking an adult that. Because mm -hmm. that feels mm -hmm. like a question that often adults will a address to children. Maybe it's just me, but I just, I had that moment where I just thought, wow, that's, it feels significant to me that it was a child asking an adult that. But that's sort of the dynamic that we often see with Kara. Mm -hmm. I mean, specifically with Sarah most of the time, but seems appropriate. And I just got to say, I thought Skylar Wexler was great in this episode. Oh, she was so good. They've put a lot on her shoulders this season, and she's done very well. She has. But I just wanted to especially give her a shout out in this episode. I thought she was really great. Yep. We have mentioned the scene a couple of times now, so this seems as good a place as any to include this feedback we received from Sally. 
She submitted it quite a while ago, but we forgot to include it before now. Sorry about that, Sally. Hey, Chris and Stephanie, this is Sally. I just love Orphan Black and I love Tatiana's Everyone. I wanted to comment about your guys' discussion about Sarah and Kira. Sarah was, you know, kind of making the deal with Kira that she'd tell her what was going on if Kira helped her understand the psychic connection thing. I thought it was very telling when Mrs. S came home that Sarah was explaining to Mrs. S with sort of a significant glance, I thought, that she was, you know, telling about, you know, confidence games with how to run them. And Kira was like, you find out what they want you give them what they want. So anyway, I wondered if like, in addition to actually finding stuff out, if what Sarah and Mrs. S really want is for Kira to tell them what Rachel is doing to her. And so it was sort of like a confidence game they were semi doing on Kira. And I also wondered if Kira was on to them a bit. That's all. Bye. The fact that Rachel dons a black eye patch to free Kira. I don't know why, but that just feels like taking something that's often associated with villains and equating it with an act of benevolence. Mm, mm-hmm. And I was trying to recall when she was wearing an eye patch back in season three, didn't she always wear white? I can't recall now. I don't remember. It seems like it was, but I'm not 100% sure. But Rachel's just oh so clever. I don't know why I didn't think about how she was going to be able to divert the surveillance cam in her eye, but eye patch did not even cross my mind. <laughs> it's a good thing I'm not Rachel <laughs> for many reasons. <laughs> I think it, it it did cross my mind. I was like, okay, she's going to try and figure out how to use this to her advantage. Maybe she's going to put an eye patch over it. So, kind of called it. But I loved the lead-in to the eye patch with the meditation room, which was yes. introduced back at the beginning of the season. I just I loved how all of that flowed together in this episode. And like looking at the the watch that she's been wearing around her neck while she's texting over to the side, and I'm like, if I did that, whoever I sent that to, nothing but gibberish. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I liked that the text message she was sending. Art was something to the effect of, I assure you, this is not a joke. And I like that she sent it to Art, because Art got to be in the episode. (laughs) We like Art. More Art, please. Art's great. Also, it makes sense that it would be to Art, because we know that she's been in contact with him because of stuff that he was doing for her. Mm -hmm. I kind of love that Rachel got to be the one who was doing the caper in this episode. Mm -hmm. It felt a bit different than the types of sneaky, capery type stuff that Sarah does and Allison does. And we've seen some of the other clones do. This one had a much more just, I don't know, quite know how to describe it. It was like, it was like a precision strike. I was going to say, it was much, much more sort of uh, organized and calm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Though, going back to your Helena Rachel comparison, probably the closest is when Helena frees herself from the cell back in season three, like, you know, sliding on mm, the butter mm-hmm. and and coming up with, with reasonable distractions. That's probably the closest thing I can think of. You're right. Now that you mention it, there is sort of a similar, I don't know, they're, they're methodical in a way mm-hmm. that 
most of the other clones aren't. Because while Sarah generally is successful, whenever she's doing sneaky stuff, there's very much a fly by the seat of her pants kind of quality to it yep. where she can, she can rely on sort of her her quick thinking and her ability to charm people to get out of tough situations but with Rachel and with Helena both it's just like boom 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 this is how we're doing it and there were no mistakes Sarah's more sort of like an improv type person as opposed to the methodical way that Helena and Rachel operate I'm curious if Westmoreland's, the reveal about Westmoreland's true identity, as well as the fact that he's not actually 170, I'm kind of wondering what impact that will actually have on folks, because she does email the board. The first time Mm -hmm. I watched it, I kind of wasn't paying attention to who she was emailing. I don't know why, I just was, I didn't really get it. But that's who she emails. She emails the board, the information that Sarah had sent her about Westmoreland's true identity, and... Can I point? I'd like to point out her email included the line, his anomaly is his ability to deceive. She's plastered at this point in writing emails like this. <laughs> I would like to point out. I, I was going to say, like, it amazes me how functional Rachel is after drinking that much. She's not that big. <laughs> she drank a lot. Because, you know, like, body mass index will affect how drunk you get. And uh, I just, I'm impressed, Rachel, and a little terrified. Do you think that part of the reason why she started drinking, I think there were a multitude of reasons, I'm sure. But I'm wondering if the eye gouging was something she had in her mind for a while, and that's partially why she was drinking. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. And as I sort of alluded to earlier, once she started drinking, my dad's like, she's she's going to poke her eye out. I thought it was interesting, maybe that's not the right word, that Rachel removed her eye in much the same way that she lost her first eye. Because even like the size of the glass and all that, it was similar. The stem of the glass was similar to a pencil. And Oh, yeah. I, I don't know. It felt It felt significant to me. Maybe it's just me and I'm reading too much into it. Because how else was she going to do it, at least by herself? How else was she going to remove her eye? Because, of course, she had to do it by herself in the most gruesome way possible. Because it feels like Rachel either, you're like, Rachel, are you awake? Are you in a coma? What is happening? It's either she's just calm and and what is going on beneath the surface, we can't tell. Or she's doing something just incredibly horrible. Those are her two modes. So, <laughs> so of course, she had to remove her eye in just that horrible, horrible, gruesome way. I feel like also there's a third mode that is somehow those two modes at the same time. <laughs> Calm and gruesome and terrible at the same time. And because Orphan Black is Orphan Black, I found myself cheering Rachel on the fact that she was gouging out her own eye. You know, kind of, now that you mention yeah. it. You're like, oh, oh good for her. <laughs> you're like, wait, the I mean, the music is terrifying at that point. There's... Like a prolonged shot of blood pooling on the floor, and you're kind of like, this is horrible, but good for you. <laughs> because it, it, it is at that point in the episode, like this really powerful act that she's taking control of her life. And like her body. Resting yeah. control from these people who've been controlling her. I mean, that's the, the, the theme of the show, is people mm-hmm. doing that. So it is this sort of 
oddly triumphant thing that she's doing, even though it's horrifying. Yeah. And I'm not saying I I think Rachel is dead necessarily, though she was losing a lot of blood. I don't believe anybody's dead until I see the body. I mean, I think you do bleed more when you've got alcohol in your system, right? Or you bleed easier? I, I don't know off the top of my head. This is a thing I've heard. I'm not sure it's true. However, even if she does end up dying from doing this to herself, it kind of feels like at least she dies as free as she could have in the circumstances. Yeah, she's she's doing it her way. <sighs> harrowing. The the end of that episode was kind of harrowing. But also oddly triumphant. It it was this show is so strange, Chris. It is so bizarre. <laughs> I, know. I know. Which is why I love it. But oh golly, is it is it a bit much at times? <laughs> Before we move on to talk about some of the other plot threads in this episode, we wanted to mention what's going on on our other podcast. Season 3 of Killjoys is currently airing on Sci-Fi, and we're releasing weekly episode discussions over on our Killjoys podcast, which is called The Quad. You can listen to episodes and find out how to subscribe over at askgenretv.com slash killjoys. And we're also covering Season 2 of Winona Earp on our multi-fandom podcast that's called Phanalysis. Uh, our friend Annie and I are discussing small batches of episodes. The first Winona Earp discussion covered the first five episodes of season two. The next episode will probably cover episodes six through nine. You can listen and find out how to subscribe at askgenretv.com slash fan. And getting back to Orphan Black, as many people have mentioned before, as as somebody they would like to see come back this season, we get the return of Mark and a little bit of Gracie. Just a, just a little bit. I feel really torn about this because even though I, I did kind of think of them as a loose end that I wouldn't mind being tied up to some extent, I am super not happy to see them <laughs> return the way that they have. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, I think that's fair. Because, like, how did Gracie find Helena? Well, they did live together at the Hendrixes for a while, so maybe Helena told her more about her past than she usually does with people, and Gracie was able to track her down from there? I don't know. But she did have a friendship with Gracie back in the day. Mm-hmm. It's true. They They could have... Stayed up late talking about Helena's horrifying past. That's a good point. But yeah, because of that, it's like, I mean, I'm glad you're back. And I'm glad we're going to find out what happened with you. But not like this. <laughs> I'm I'm anxious about it. Because you leave Helena alone. <laughs> yeah. And this is how they used Mark and Gracie, well, particularly Gracie before, as just this betrayer to the Lita clones. So I'm hoping they might defy our expectations and actually turn out to be allies, maybe, fingers crossed, but I'm not, I'm not counting on it. Yeah. I mean, I also hope that this is maybe going to go that way, but that's not the way it's been introduced. So it's hard to say, because again, it's this show, they might pull a fast one on us wouldn't wouldn't surprise me but yeah i don't know because because mark went 
to Dr. Cody and he wants a cure, which makes sense. That's justifiable motivation. So I don't know. I'm trying to maybe consider the fact that Kasima does have a cure and she has a large amount of her cure, as Rachel said. So is it possible if they still were able to get in touch with Mark and Gracie, they meaning the Lita clones, if they could extend that to Mark as a way to get him to make contact with Cody. But like, given the fact that Kasima just got back and was just telling Sarah about the fact that, hey, Cody's on the island, it seems very unlikely. <laughs> right. I, re I realize that, people who are listening. I'm just trying to hope that maybe they aren't going to betray the Lita clones because I don't want it to happen. Yeah. I'm not sure how this is going to play out. Maybe they'll... Maybe they'll start to betray them, but then turn around? I mean, I don't know. Guys, just leave Helena alone. She's trying to percolate some kids in peace. Just just leave her be. <laughs> percolate. I like it. But yeah, if, if we're going to get into the uh, disturbing conversation here that Mark had with Virginia Cody, because she tells him that she needs an ejaculate sample, and it makes me nervous, Stephanie. What are our horrible ideas for what she want for what she might want to do with it. Okay, well, first of all, before we we knew that she wanted to basically weaponize their illness because they could sterilize women by sleeping with them. And so there's that. And we've heard Dr. Cody recently reaffirm her belief in the usefulness of that particular mechanism. So it's it's not like she's lost interest in that. Yeah, because she wouldn't, because she's awful. Yep. There's also a thing that had occurred to me in, I believe it was last season, they remember they were going to take Ira's sperm and Sarah's eggs and try and find a cure that way. So maybe she's going to fertilize a Lita egg. I don't know. Or also, and I hate to even bring this up, and I'm sorry, but... They are harvesting Kira's eggs, so... Was that the plan? Yeah, I mean, it seems within the realm of horrible, horrible possibility, right? I think so, yeah. And like we saw her do with Ira, I felt like Dr. Cody was trying to manipulate Mark hard this episode. Again, almost all the parental figures on the show, that's kind of the thing they do. She was called Bad Mother in the writer's room. That's right. I forgot about that. Because I thought that when she took Mark to see Ira's grave and making a big show of crying about how all the other casters are gone, that seemed like a big bunch of waterworks to me. I didn't buy it for a second that she was actually crying. I think that was like right after she was talking about how she decided that Ira was the one who got sent with Susan. Like she made that decision by drawing straws. Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't, she doesn't really care. <laughs> so I think from that scene, I have a couple of questions. Okay. Is Dr. Tel Cody telling the truth? Are all the other casters dead? We never got a firm number on how many there were. And wasn't she just telling Ira that she wasn't... Oh, wait, no, she didn't answer him. Nope, we didn't hear her answer. I was thinking that she told him she didn't know, but we don't know because she never answered him. Hmm. In a way... I'm inclined to accept that she's telling the truth here. Well, take that back. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And you know why I'm not? Because they show them standing over Ira's grave. His last name is Blair, apparently. But we never saw Ira dead. He was not doing well in 506, for sure. But he was still alive the last time we saw him. Right, because we, we saw him sort of collapse next to Susan. Yes. And I suppose it could have been interpreted as sort of like him dying next to her. But like, it wasn't necessarily. Because I don't think we saw him slump over or anything like that. I think we saw we see him sit down, kind of collapse onto the floor. But he's still sitting up, I believe, the last time we see him. And so until I see his dead body, <laughs> I'm really not inclined to believe he's actually dead. He might be dead. But again, I remain skeptical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that totally sounded like you said Ira main skeptical, <laughs> which is an inappropriate joke to make, probably. But mm. it did sound like you said Ira. Though, because she is reaching out to Mark, it does make me consider that perhaps the other casters are dead, because he clearly was not particularly willing to participate in stuff she wanted to do. So I don't right. think he would be her first choice. Yeah, probably not. Although I'm curious, because if Ira had died, she'd had access to Ira. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But maybe since he was already so far as gone as he is, he wouldn't be as useful? I don't know. Oh, uh, could be. That's a good he was point. already glitching. Mm -hmm. And as far as we know, at least, Mark has not started glitching yet. So I am curious to see if there's any follow-up on Ira. And I'm wary of you, Mark and Gracie. You stay away from Helena. And the rest of Clone Club. Yeah. Speaking of the rest of Clone Club, we need to talk about Allison. Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> I have a question. Okay. Were you thrown off when she walked through that door? Did you have a moment of like, wait, is that Allison? Because I had a moment of, wait, is that Allison? <laughs> I can't recall. Maybe a little bit. I think I more just was thinking, oh, she changed her hair. She changed her hair a lot. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was just like a split second weird thing where it's just kind of like, the thing I'm hearing does not match the thing I'm seeing. Hmm. It sounds like Allison, but it doesn't quite look like Allison. I am curious as to why they are choosing to have this little identity crisis slash life change event. I don't know what exactly to call it. This close to the end of the series? it I don't... And I'm super curious to see if it actually holds, because... Mm -hmm. We've kind of seen Allison determined to turn over a new leaf before. And while she seems different now, this is certainly a path she's tried to go down before. Yeah, I mean, I kind of get it as a plot point because, you know, Allison has often been the one who's most stubbornly like, no, this is this is my life, <laughs> even though it's so strange you know, she's she's determinedly who she is. That's been her thing. She's like, this is my life. I, I'm not going to let any of this change it. We've gotten to a point this season where she's like, but wait, look at all the other versions of people made up of the same genetic stuff that I made up of. It's It's like she's had this sort of revelation of like, I could be anything. And so now she's it seems like she's trying on other identities to some extent, right? Because hmm. she's like, no, this is this is stuff I used to do. I'm going to do new stuff and 
we'll see how that goes. And <laughs> it's like a third life crisis that she's going through. I know that's not a thing, but a, a premature midlife crisis. A quarter life crisis. It's a little past quarter. <laughs> Which is why I'm saying third. Oh, oh, in that sense, not as in her third of the series. That's what I thought you were going for. Oh, no. No, I mean, like one third, the fraction. Okay, got it. <laughs> a 33% life crisis. <laughs> I did enjoy seeing her tossing out all of her craft supplies and bringing in the keyboard. Yeah, and Donnie being all excited. Hey, you got a Korg! <laughs> Probably the the lightest moment in the episode, not surprisingly, came from Allison, where she's bopping her head along to the pre-recorded beat. That was pretty good. <laughs> it was good. We actually got a message from Brad about Allison. He says, about Allison 2.0, I know Tatiana has talked about how certain parts of each clone's costume helps her get into character, like Crystal's nails. Given that, I wonder if Allison's new look prevented her from fully channeling Allison. She didn't seem herself, and at first I wondered if Crystal was trying to impersonate Allison, then I remembered Crystal would never accept any other clones as looking like her. Coincidentally, we got sort of a, a counter-argument from Kevin, saying, I wanted to give my thoughts on Allison's return this episode with her groovy new look and outlook. While I'm not exactly sure where they're going with this change, considering there are only three episodes left in the series, I think I kind of love it. Allison is a person who never does anything halfway, so if she was going to go away for three episodes to find herself, of course she would return with purple hair and a tattoo of a Thoreau quote in swooshy letters. She still feels very much like herself to me, and I can't wait to see how the rest of Clone Club reacts to the quote-unquote new Allison. I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle between Kevin and Brad, because... Actually, no, I'm probably closer to Kevin's perspective on it, just because... While I, I can see why she didn't quite feel like Allison when she showed up, I feel like that was the point. Right. So it might have actually been helpful to Tatiana that Allison wasn't rocking her more traditional look and, and wig and, and costume pieces because Allison was really trying to be very different or, you know, has gone through a change and it now is very different. Right. I mean, I... I'm interpreting it that way also, that this is Allison sort of throwing herself headfirst into being someone else, basically. She's like, I've been this way my whole life. I want to try to do something else. At least that's how I'm reading the situation. And I will say, thinking back to other points in the series where Allison has tried to turn over a new leaf, this time it doesn't smack of the same self-delusion that previous instances <laughs> have have uh have included like maybe a little bit like when she's talking to donnie about i'm not going to tell you what to do anymore but even that it did feel like that was coming from a genuine place and not a place of like hoping that she would be able to be different she did feel more different to me here than she has in right. previous instances yeah i agree this feels more like wanting to try new things, then I'm going to go into a, some form of denial. <laughs> One of Allison's favorite vacation spots. Yes. And jumping over to the other piece of Clone Club, we got to see Cosima. She and Charlotte made it. Thank goodness. I am very relieved. I was pretty confident they would, but I just, I wanted to see them safe and sound. And they are. Fandom would have revolted if anything had happened to either of them. I know. Well, I didn't think they were going to, 
die or anything, but I was worried they'd be recaptured. But they weren't. They mm-hmm. made it. Mm-hmm. Did, did you catch the bit about how Kasima like, sent the boat back out unmanned? Yes, to throw <laughs> them off. Uh, I'm amused by that for some reason. And it was very satisfying to see Kasima and Scott hug. They haven't been together all season. I know. I am a little bit sad that we didn't get more Kasima. Yeah, me too. But the past couple of episodes have been very Kasima heavy. It's true. And they had to properly build up to Rachel's dramatic act at the end. Yeah. To be fair, even though Rachel took up a lot of time in this episode, boy, was it like a satisfying build and conclusion. Well, maybe satisfying is not the quite word, but there was payoff. <laughs> gosh darn it. There was some gosh darn payoff to all of that building that they did. It's true. Though maybe it's satisfying if you like seeing Rachel get stabbed in the eye. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I don't know. It does It does happen a lot. Though this time I did not say, ha, deserved it. I said, ha, good for her. <laughs> but going back to Kasima, Brad also mentioned in the email that he sent that he had a prediction that Kasima and Delphine might adopt Charlotte at the end of the of the season. And I, I kind of don't mind that idea of Kasima continuing to be Charlotte's guardian. Mm-hmm. Though maybe she would be happy if she and Kira could maybe be sisters. I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe maybe Mrs. S would adopt her. It's a thing Mrs. S would do. Yeah. Brad also mentioned that maybe Shay might be Mrs. S's deep throat contact. I'm intrigued by this because I like Ksenia Solo, but it seems very unlikely to me. I agree. It seems unlikely. I would not hate it if it's true. But on to some stray thoughts about this episode. So now we've had this season, we've had episodes with extensive Allison, Kasima, and now Rachel flashbacks. So I'm wondering if we should expect Sarah and Helena flashbacks sometime in the next three episodes. Hmm. That would be interesting. I kind of feel like we don't necessarily need Sarah flashbacks. I agree. I'm just wondering if it's coming. Again, like, I'd be cool with it if we had them, but we, we've we had more information on Sarah throughout the series. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hate it if they did it, and I wouldn't hate it if they don't do it. You know? Right. Some Helena flashbacks might be interesting. I don't know that we need them. But again, like, it, it just, it depends on what they would be, I guess. Well, I, and I kind of feel that way for many of the flashbacks this season. It's not that all of them have been strictly necessary, but I do feel like they have given us a more solid context for each of the clones than we had had before. Yeah, it's it's been context and color, if you will. I've enjoyed them. Oh, I have too. Good. You are you are often harsher on flashbacks than I am. I know, I know. I wanted to get your thoughts on what we saw of the people in Revival this episode. I can't remember what all we've seen. All we really see is when Rachel arrives to visit her mother's grave, there's these new wooden stake-like things that have been erected kind of like a fence. Oh, that's right. At the bottom of the staircase that leads to his house. Yeah. And then men (sighs) with weapons directing her, you know, oh, your mother's around back or what have you. You know, last time we saw it, it was in flames. Villagers were pissed. 
I didn't feel like this was particularly satisfying follow-up on what we last saw of Revival. Right. And I wasn't entirely sure what to take away from that. Because while the fence to me suggested some hostility between <laughs> Westmoreland and the, and the villagers, it was open. And they were, like, directing Rachel onto his into his property. So I don't entirely know what to think of it. Yeah, it. I'm a little confused about it, quite frankly. Because they were burning down their own town sort of in revolt of being lied to by this guy. But that guy seems fine. <laughs> yeah. So, like, did did his loyalists just, like, show up and block the angry people from him? Like, what happened? Mm-hmm. I, I do hope there's follow-up next episode. More satisfying follow-up. Because, like, the place was on fire last we saw it. <laughs> exactly. And then finally, if people were curious... I don't know if this is useful information at all, but I thought I'd mention it in case people were curious. When Rachel emails the board, here are the names of the people who are on the board. Dr. Ian Van Leer, whom we've met. Hashem Al-Khatib, who Rachel talked to in this episode and who Sarah and Mrs. S were looking at for running a slush fund that Dyad was funneling money into, Neelushin was funneling money into. I'm not entirely sure what entity to call them now. Leslie Richards, Daniel Lee, Dr. Jules Martin, Terry Locke, and Song Pak. Forgive me if I mispronounced any of those names. But I, I think the reason I wanted to mention the names of the people on the board is I believe the surname Pak is a Korean surname. And I'm thinking back to the second season, I believe it's the second season, when Rachel is meeting with people from, I believe, South Korea to discuss some kind of deal with Dyad or what have you. Mm, mm-hmm. Also, I wanted to mention, and I actually tweeted about this during the episode, is it just me, or did we see more women on that board last season than we saw this season, or in this episode specifically? I feel like we did. So I want to say there were like three or four last season. I think it was pretty evenly split, but I think there were only two, one or two in this one. Yes, I, I believe you're right. I think we did see more women last time, but board members can change. Well, sure. If it did change, what does that mean? <laughs> I'm just suspicious of everything is basically what I'm saying here. And then one last thing that isn't particularly related to this episode. We got an email from Ralph saying, thanks for talking through your thoughts on the show each week. The homestretch is becoming so dramatically dense that it is hard to absorb without comparing notes. One question I have for you. Does the title of your podcast refer to the idea that Tatiana is the driving force for the plot and cast of Orphan Black, or the idea that Tatiana's roles represent everyone who is everyone who is facing the challenges of real-world bio, biotechnology and society as it changes ever more rapidly. The last few episodes, in parallel to events in the real world, make me feel like we are all facing the stresses that Clone Club are stepping up to. Chris was actually the one who came up with the name for our podcast, so what do you think, Chris? What were your intentions? Uh, mostly, I thought it was funny. <laughs> and I'm sorry for having such a disappointing answer after your thoughtful question, Ralph. But uh, really, it was just, like at the time that we were trying to come up with a podcast name, the really obvious stuff like Clone Club or the Orphan Black podcast were already taken. Yeah. So basically, Stephanie and I started pitching ideas at one another. And they kind of got progressively more ridiculous. And terrible. <laughs> Granted, they were terrible. And terrible. But we were mostly joking, I think, with most of them. 
And uh, one of the big fandom sort of jokes at the time was that, oh yeah, Tatiana is everyone. I semi-jokingly, semi-seriously suggested it to Stephanie. And I think we had had a laugh about it. And then Stephanie was like, I kind of like it. <laughs> I'm like, I kind of like it too. <laughs> so uh, that is the answer. That is the, that is the truthful answer. I, I think also the reason that whole idea of like, oh, Tatiana is everyone was in response to season one, where a lot of the big reveals in season one, like, oh, it's another Tatiana Maslany. So it's true. Yeah. The, the idea that all these people kept popping up and they were all Tatiana Maslany was a bigger deal in season one than it has been subsequently. It was a little bit of a, a visual punchline. Yes. It's like, oh, oh, look, it's a shadowy figure. Oh, wait, it's Tatiana Maslany again. But I feel like as the podcast has gone on and as the show has evolved, I, I do think for me at least, it does have more of a significance of the fact that on the show, Tatiana Maslany represents so many different people and, and types of people and, and different facets of human nature. And so it has taken on a bit more of a, I don't know, serious philosophical connotation to it over the years. I don't know if it's done the same for you, Chris, but it has for me. I, I think you're right. There is like a certain universality, I guess, of, of humanity that is represented there. Maybe. Is that like the worst possible way to phrase that? <laughs> but thank you for your, your very thoughtful question, Ralph. Hopefully people will remember what you said and not what we said and think we're way smarter than we actually are. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And thank you, Ralph, for the kind words. Yes. Thank you so much for your kind words. Thank you to everybody who sent in feedback for this episode. We would love to hear your thoughts about how the season is going, your thoughts about Gag and Throttle, or pretty much anything else that has happened this season. You can send us that feedback in a number of ways. Send us an email, feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com. We also love getting voice messages. You can send those in a couple of ways. Record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to us. Or you can call our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. We are on Twitter at TIE Podcast, and we are also on Facebook. Tatiana's Everyone is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. You can find our other podcasts about Killjoys and Winona Earp and Lost Girl and some other shows over at AskGenreTV.com. And in this episode, The Wallow Room was played by Tatiana Maslany. Thanks for listening. <laughs>